Hello, my name is Sam. And my name is Chern. It's Saturday the 21st of November 2020, and this is Ballot to Talk About. Hey Sam, how's it going? How's your week been? It's been very good. Lots of stories to keep up with, as per usual. Oh, definitely has been. And even though we, we today are going to talk about down ballot, we can't quite seem to keep our eye on the unfolding many legal challenges failing that Donald Trump is launching, can you? No, I think his time is running out. I think I read yesterday that Pennsylvania is, is certifying its results on Monday. And I would think that that would be the final straw. But you never know with this administration, do you? You never know, but a light-hearted comedy week, and I'm sure, given that we both have day jobs, so we look at politics outside, uh, must be the picture of Rudy Giuliani at the press <laughs> conference this week, when it looked like yeah. he was sweating. I didn't, know whether he, I didn't know whether he was sweating because he was warm, whether he was sweating because he knew he was lying, or whether he was sweating because he has COVID. We, I guess we'll never really know. Well, his son has COVID, actually, so you never might know, and... Um, and, and what the other thing we both found, I found suddenly very amusing, is that it suddenly looked like he leaked hair dye yes, out, yeah. out of it. So it created this you know, like very tangerine Donald Trump look with this black thing going down his teeth, <laughs> which is such a comedic moment. And Rudy Giuliani being appointed as the president's uh, legal, um, helping out with all his lawsuits must be the... Must be the biggest lull of 2020 that I can certainly think of. Oh, for sure. No reputable lawyers want to go anywhere near it, that's for sure. That's for sure. But uh, I think it's time now we move on from the presidential election and we talk about what has happened down ballot. Now, when you meant about down ballot, that means the, what happened in both the House and the Senate and also a short chat about what we having in some of the governor's races and in what happened in some of the state House and Senate as well and its implication for politics in both the U.S. and what it means about U.S. electoral trends. But first, Sam, what are some of the main non-U.S. news that you have been looking at this week? Yes, so following on from the conversation we had last week, uh, we finally got the results from the Moldovan presidential election runoff, and Maya Sandu won that runoff, as expected, But she won with just under 58% of the vote, which exceeded a lot of polls and predictions and also exceeded the projected 54% from the exit poll that was released last Sunday. So the incumbent president, Dodon, offered precautionary congratulations subject to courts finding no irregularities, which is quite familiar this week, it would seem. (laughs) And she has been holding this week conversations with... Uh, the Romanian president, Iohannis, and I read that they're expected to meet in the Moldovan capital next year, early next year, to discuss, amongst other things, including, I imagine, COVID, uh, a possible path to European integration. So with this election result, we might be looking, as we discussed last week, at some developments on the European Union side, which will be interesting to follow. As we talked about last week, Sandu was helped heavily by the diaspora vote, as we expected. And I saw a statistic that it jumped from, in 2016 presidential election, from 138,000 to this year, 263,000. And it represented 16% of the overall turnout in the second round, which I just think is phenomenal. 
really. And it looked like the diaspora voted 93% for Sandu. So she really did hoover up that vote outside of Moldova and it likely played a large role in her victory. So that's what I've been following this week. How about you? Well, I'd just like to quickly just note down um, some of the things that you have talked about. Um, the first thing I noticed is that you said that, I think, first of all, it shows you the extent of the diaspora vote outside 16% of the population. That, to me, is astounding. The one thing I'm curious, though, because this doesn't quite solve her problems in the sense that the Congress is still going to be opposition control and yeah. filled with cronies of the ex-president. And she's going to have to work with them in order to get anything done, including corruption. Now, in many of these countries, as I'm sure you know, all these leaders, particularly the ones who get in, always say, we will combat corruption, we will combat corruption. And I remember reading that the last time a pro-European leader got into office, the same kind of problems in terms of like, the promise a lot, but failed to tackle the underlying issues. Do you think this could potentially happen in Moldova and this could be suddenly a downside risk for her? Yeah, I think it could certainly be a problem. I mean, one of her immediate problems for sure is the now divided government, because as we talked about last week, uh, Maya Sandu held the post of prime minister very temporarily, um, which just shows the volatility of the kind of majority she will be looking to command, um, even with a coalition of parties an informal coalition of parties that includes her own. I think it will be very difficult to manage. I think that's so, and I'll be certainly looking on Moldova sense, how the Prime Minister, who was, as we discussed last week, an advisor to now the outgoing president, whether yeah. he will keep his job, I don't think he will. But um, also another country in which I was keeping my look out for was Peru. Now, Sam, we seem to be having a habit of recording podcasts the day before big political events happen, don't yeah. we? Um, Pennsylvania, as, if, as you remember last year, we recorded the podcast when we talked about the Midwest about an hour before Pennsylvania is called. And last week, we recorded the Peru podcast the day before um, then-President Manuel Moreno resigned after five days in the job. And his successor was a man called Francesco Saga Sati, who the day before was elected president of Congress. Now, I think what has happened is that in Peru, because, as we mentioned last week, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, who was elected president, had two vice presidents. One of them succeeded him to become Manuel Varascara, to become president after he had to stand down. The second vice president became prime minister, so left the office. So therefore, whoever is now president of Congress under the line of succession will automatically become president, which is exactly what has happened here when Francesco Sagasti has become president. Now, Moreno formed a very right-wing administration after, with the support of the military after Vascaro was ousted last week. And there was a lot of protests as we discussed last week. And what has happened is that the police was found to use very heavy-handed tactics that resulted in the deaths of two young, very young protesters, and that kind of inflamed tensions even more. And that caused the resignation of both the cabinet and bring the precursor to then the resignation of Moreno himself. Just a bit of new background on the Peruvian president. Um, Sagasiti was founded and elected as leader of the Purple Party, which is a centrist political party. And it's certainly a contrast to the conservative Moreno, in a, and I suspect in an attempt to appease the protesters, 
because I think Congress itself has been remarkably humbled by the constitutional crisis that it created. So it had to be even the lot more right-leaning parties. It had to consider uh, what the protesters wanted. Now, a bit of background himself, he, like Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, also is a very credentialed person. He previously worked in the World Bank and the World Economic Forum. But the challenge is, of course, as we discussed a bit like Moldova, on delivery, on whether mm-hmm. he can deliver on the promises and the wills of the people who protested and the people who are very disillusioned with the political system. He has appointed Especially in an environment where it's so politically unstable. I think you mentioned last week, was it six prime ministers in two years? And now they've had three presidents in a week. Yep, and we're now on to the seventh prime minister in two years because a woman called Violeta Bernadez was appointed prime minister. She's Peru's fifth female prime minister since the first was elected in 2003. And Violeta Bernadez served as its, her chief of staff. But I, again, the tenure of Peru prime ministers is not long, so whether she or stay in power is, um, remains to be seen. She's a former human rights coordinator at the USAID department, USAID. Um, so it is, will be very interesting to see how she travels and how the government travels. The good news is, from the president's point of view, is that he, suddenly out, he has already outlasted the tenure of his, of his predecessors. So that's a tick in his box. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's all I've been following, Sam, on the Peruvian side. Um, I noticed today is the Georgian parliamentary run, second round runoff, isn't it? It is, yes. So in Georgia, they have a 150-seat parliament. 120 seats of that are elected based on a purely proportional basis from the first round, which was held on the 31st of October. And what is happening today is that those remaining 30 seats, the 16 of which didn't get an overall majority, are holding the second round in a similar way to uh, France holds their elections. Now, these elections are marred with severe accusations of electoral violence and manipulation. So the results aren't necessarily to be taken as as writ, but that remains to be seen. But what I thought was a really interesting story that came out of the Georgian parliamentary elections, which I just thought has to be mentioned here because it's just hilarious, is there is a new libertarian centrist party in Georgia called the Gierchi Party, and they, they were founded to be an anti-establishment party. One of their key goals is to challenge the um, state funding of political parties. So in response to this policy, they announced that anybody who votes for them on election day, if they manage to exceed the electoral threshold, which is 1%, if they manage to exceed that threshold and get a seat in parliament, they will put all of the people that voted for them into a lottery to win one of a few Tesla cars. One of a few? That suggests more than one. Yeah, so they said that the number of Tesla cars available in this lottery will be determined by how much funding they receive and how many (laughs) they can afford. But they'll be buying them with state funding to raffle them off to their voters. Any reason why Tesla... Talk about vote buying. First of all, for 1% threshold, I mean, that's very low. So... I mean, it's a high chance you'll get in, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, they did. They did get in. So we'll see if they actually follow through on that because they actually achieved just under 3% of the vote <laughs> on the 31st of October. Apparently, the decision to buy Tesla cars was motivated by... They're a party who are, who are pro-US. 
So they want to prove their pro-US credentials by buying US stock. But I just thought that story was so funny. So funny. I just think and it's it clearly amazing. Worked. It clearly worked as a persuasion tactic. So I think but, that leads us nicely on because from one place called Georgia to a state in the US called Georgia, Georgia remains the only state which hasn't declared its Senate results, correct? Yep, in terms of the Senate. However, I would like to point out as well that on the House side, the Louisiana's Fifth House District will also go to a runoff because they both rely on a jungle primary. And the reason why it's going to run off is because it's heavily Republican. Jungle primary means that everyone runs on the same ballot. There are two Republicans that got through. It's a wait and see, but it'll be a Republican seat. So should we start with our discussion on the US down ballot on the Senate side? Because I think we'll, we both agree that the Senate and the House were both quite surprising, but particularly on the Senate side, there were a few surprising results. So at the moment, the Senate balance will be 50 Republican seats to 48 Democratic seats. The two Georgia seats, the Georgia main election, which was for David Perdue's seat, and the special election, which was vacated by Isaacson and is currently held by Kelly Loeffler, will both be going to a runoff on January the 5th. But for now, it's 50-48. The Republicans managed to flip Alabama, and the Democrats managed to flip Arizona and Colorado. So we have a net gain of one on the Democratic side so far, with two Georgia seats still to be called. But I think you'll agree, Chern, that that's not the result we were both expecting, was it? No, it wasn't. And I have to be honest that I just I underestimated the amount of split ticket voting. So just to quickly explain what split ticket and straight ticket voting is. Split ticket is when um, you vote for, let's say, the president is Joe Biden in this case, but then you vote down ballot the other party. So in other words, you're complete ballot that you have which has numerous races on it you have voted for a mixture of democrat or republican however if you vote entirely democrats on the ticket you are then known as straight ticket voter because you only voted for one party that's the difference and what is clearly happened is that biden has won a few states like maine but on the senate side it seems that no matter how much you huff and you puff, and you, you can't quite blow Susan Collins away, can you? You really can't. I mean, I think, as I, I, I think I mentioned this in our first podcast after the election was held, but for me, Susan Collins's ability to hold on to her seat in this election was by far the most surprising thing about this whole electoral cycle. And it's because, as we discussed, the Democratic performance in New England was one of their strongest places in the whole country. The swing there in, on the presidential level was, was almost double the margins they held that Hillary Clinton held in 2016. And yet still, Susan Collins managed to hold on. And she didn't just hold on. She ended up winning that seat over Sarah Gideon by 8% which is much higher margin than we expected either of those candidates to be able to achieve. And if you'd have told me a couple of weeks ago that the main result was going to be won by 8%, I would have guessed that, that it would be Sarah Gideon winning by 8%, if anything. And, and Susan Collins managed to pull it off, which is quite remarkable, really. Well, what's unique, though, is let's look next door in New Hampshire, who also held a Senate election. 
Now, if we remember back to 2016, both the presidential level and the um, Senate level saw a very tight contest between, um, at that stage, Maggie Hassan was the, and Kelly Ayotte was on the Senate side. This time round, in the Senate side, totally, it tracked the presidential level in the sense that both Janine Shaheen and Biden won New Hampshire handsomely. Biden won New Hampshire by seven points, and Shaheen did even better than Biden, winning by 15 points. So right. clearly, in both cases, the incumbent senators vastly outperformed the respective party leaders on their ticket, didn't they? They really did, yeah. And what I thought, what I thought was particularly interesting, I know we'll come on to talk a bit more about New England because there was a governor's race you wanted to talk about briefly there as well. But I think we can both agree that at the moment we are in a period of hyper-partisanship in the US. Mm. And I don't think we quite realised how much that affected down-ballot races. And certainly I didn't realise until looking into the data a bit more this week just how stark that contrast has been, particularly in the last 10 years. Now, I've got an interesting statistic here. Um, So if we look back to the 1980s under Reagan's presidency, In 1980 and 84, the Republicans held just about half of the Senate seats in states that voted for Reagan in both those occasions. Okay. But now, the Republicans hold 47 of the 50 seats in the 25 states that voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. So that's gone from them holding 50% of the states that were solidly Republican in the 80s to holding 40 set, like, almost 100% of the seats in the states that voted Republican both times in the last two elections, which I think wow. just demonstrates how much split ticketing has just evaporated completely, which I think just contextualizes how shocking a result Susan Collins is, is really in the grand scheme of things. And also another statistic that proves just how much partisanship is going on is that it's projected that only six states after this Senate cycle are going to have split delegations. Now, that means they have one Democratic senator and one Republican senator, or one independent and one attached to the Democrats or Republicans. Um, And that will be the lowest number since 1908. Before this election, there was nine of them. And there's looking like there's only going to be six So there are going to be 44 states that send delegations exclusively of one party. The one thing I want to talk about, though, and let's just stick on New England, because obviously there are many other interesting Senate races we want to talk about, is that I'd like to talk about the governors, bring up the governor's elections. Mm -hmm. Now, the governor elections also took place as well on the same day, but have not really garnered the same kind of profile. But... New Hampshire and Vermont are two states in which hold governor elections every two years, rather than most other states now at four years. Now, both Phil Scott and Chris Sahino are Republican governors of Vermont and New Hampshire, respectively. Now, they're two states that are next door to Maine, and so therefore, and share quite the same demographics. Now, the reason why I like to point it out is that as we, Shaheen skated to re-election, winning by 15 points, as we said, and with a share of the vote of 57%. Chris Sahino, as the Republican governor, got 65%. So there's been a lot of split-ticket voting. People who voted Democrat on the Senate side and presidential voted Republican in New Hampshire for the governor. And they also did, and the Republicans did very well in the New Hampshire House 
and the New Hampshire Senate as well. In fact, they took back control from the Democrats who controlled both chambers in 2018. Wow. In Vermont, we saw... The Dem- this is the home state, of course, of Bernie Sanders, you know, avowed democratic socialist. Biden won 66% of the vote to Donald Trump's 30%, so that's a 36-point margin. And on the governor's races, Phil Scott did 68% of the vote to 28%. So he did, a, that's a huge 40-point gap. And so that means a lot of people who voted for Biden voted for Phil Scott, the governor. Now, it does help that Phil Scott, being a Republican governor, is a very moderate Republican. So, for example, unlike most of the Republicans, he has refused to go on this bandwagon that Trump has won. He has enacted gun control laws, which this, being a Republican in this hyper-partisanship era is particularly um, interesting as well. But I like, given the extent of split-ticket voting and its decline elsewhere, do you think now split-ticket voting is mainly a New England phenomenon? That is something in New England that is making split-ticket more viable there compared to the rest of the country? I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but I remember reading an article in the build-up to the election, which was specifically about Maine, but I think the lessons there apply to New England more broadly, about how Maine, for at least the last several decades, has sent one Democratic-leaning senator and one Republican-leaning senator, and it would take quite something to break that mould, even when incumbency stops being a factor they seem determined that they are going to send a balanced ticket to uh, Washington, to Congress. So I wonder if maybe it's a belief within the community that they want to show that they are truly independent states, that they are independent-minded, and even though on the presidential level they might lean towards one candidate or the other, they have an aversion to their state being exclusively pro-one party in a way that states around the country don't necessarily feel that way. I don't know. What, what do you think? I have to say, I slightly, I slightly disagree with that sentiment because don't forget, Olympia Snow, who is a Republican who retired in 2012, and Susan Collins both held both Senate seats for a while. Um, so I wonder whether... I think the answer to me is much more about the something called the Yankee Republicans because don't forget, if you go back in history, Vermont and New Hampshire were two states that didn't vote for FDR. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt over his four terms. So historically, the Republicans were always strong in the Northeast until 1992 when they virtually lost a whole lot to Bill Clinton. So I wonder whether on the presidential level it has gone there, but the strength of the local Republican Party is still very much there. The infrastructure is still there. And there's this, and you could argue that the Northeast is much more educated in terms of its voters. And Therefore, and they like this idea of bipartisan working with each other, which is why the senators that Susan Collins, you know, Susan Collins, that kind of more always wanted to help work with the other side works in these kind of places. And therefore, I'm much more willing to look beyond just the ideological position. And Maine is one of those in which we got our predictions horribly wrong. And I think it was probably the most out one where we got it wrong completely. North Carolina... You, you called it. Um, I thought Carl Cunningham would be safe, but unfortunately he didn't make it through, did he? No, he didn't. And as we discussed for the last few weeks, really, it, it remains to be seen whether Cal Cunningham was doomed because of the sexting scandal stories that were circulating around him. 
But it seems that in the final results that Tom Tillis's performance and Donald Trump's performance almost identically map onto each other when you look at where their vote occurred. So again, to me, it seems to be another example of the absence of split ticketing in the 2020 election. Would you agree? I think that's true. I will broadly agree with it. But there are still some underlying differences that I have noticed. So for example, I looked at where Donald Trump outran Tom Tillis and vice versa. So Kyle Cunningham did a lot better than Joe Biden in a lot of the rural areas in North Carolina. So by, by, as a result of that, um, Tom Tillis underperformed Donald Trump in a lot of the rural areas. And I think, once again, it shows that still there's some lingering strength rural Democrats have down the ballot compared to the top of the ticket where they were still very inanimate by Donald Trump. And it's very obvious that if you look around Charlotte, which is the main city in North Carolina, Tom Tillis outran Donald Trump most in the wealthiest suburbs around Charlotte. So therefore, I think it's very obvious to me that there is still some of these underlying trends going on in terms of Democrats doing a little bit, tra- traditionally, Democrats doing better in rural areas but, and Republicans doing better in the suburbs. But at the top of the ticket, it's just flipped the other way around under this Trump era. So yeah, I thought that would be quite interesting. It, yeah, I find it interesting that Tom Tillis outran Donald Trump in areas that were more likely to support Joe Biden. Um, I wonder if it has something to do with those voters thinking, well, if Joe Biden carries this state, I would rather there be a check on him with a Republican senator. And I wonder if a few people made that conscious decision, because I think that was definitely prevalent in some other states. I, I think that I think that's definitely true. But then the, the thing that I think that strikes me, I think that's very true. I, I do buy this statement. But then I, then I do wonder, though, why the Republican voters are so loyal relative to the Democrats? Because we then look at all these reach states we've been talking about in recent weeks, Montana, you know, It would South have taken Carolina. quite a reach to tip these. Yes, exactly. And yeah, you know, I think for, for listeners' benefit, just so you have all the information in one place, I'll reel off some statistics. So of our reach states, Montana, Texas, South Carolina, and Kansas, all of them, the Republican candidate won by more than 10 percent all of them right so Um, so even when biden managed to increase his national vote share on hillary clinton those margins were still over double figures so the gap just did not close in the way we expected to at all in fact the closest of all of those which surprised both me and you was texas so Texas ended up actually being the closest, whereas we thought always that that was going to be the most difficult of the reach states for them to topple. And yet, here we are. But then, so, so, so therefore we have this situation, though, that are we in a situation now in which if you look at the presidential election and the partisanship there, can you therefore determine the makeup of the senators that goes from that state? If the presidential election is so one-sided, are we in an era in which you cannot really elect senators from the other party? Quite possibly. I mean, I think, again, and I keep saying this, I think it's just a reflection of the, the supremely partisan environment we're in, which is that people are just so determined to vote straight ticket that in Republican states, like our reach states, Montana, South Carolina, Kansas, the prospect of you voting for Donald Trump at the top of the ticket and voting for a Democratic candidate down the ticket is just so alien in this environment. 
And I wonder, and this brings me on to one of the big questions I wanted to ask on the Senate side. Should we have seen this coming the whole time? Was this Senate map always more difficult than we were expecting it to be? Was it always going to be a challenge for the Democrats to win an outright majority in the Senate? Now, I think we should mention that the prospect of the Democrats winning a majority is not completely off the cards because if they win both of the Georgia runoffs, they will become 50-50. And with Kamala Harris being the deciding vote, they would hold the majority. But was this map always very hard? Don't forget, at the start of the year, we, everyone sort of ripped off Democrats' chances to win the Senate, didn't they? They did, yeah, including us. Including us. I, I was very surprised when they closed it. So maybe in the end, our priors were correct in a sense that Democrats will hold the presidency, will take back the presidency, probably win the House, and will probably lose the Senate. It looks like what's ending up to. I think it's just slightly ironic that if... I think what we can both say is that we're not going to really talk about Georgia because we can save it for the runoff and the trends that we observe there. But if Lafayette and Purdue probably are going to exit pair, I doubt if, if they, they will both get re-elected or they both will lose re-election, won't yeah. they? So, I think that's probably correct. Yeah, and I just so, I just found it interesting on the question I asked because I've seen a lot of articles talking about how the Senate was a big disappointment. But I think if you look at the map from pure from a pure raw partisan perspective, the path to fifty seats was always going to be hard. Mm, I agree because because of the re- strong Republican leaning of the sort of states that you would need to bring into play. Now, Iowa was one of those states that they wanted to bring into play on the Senate side, but the Senate side and the presidential side margins mapped onto each other almost identically as well. I mean, Johnny Ernst won that seat by 7%, uh, which was a pretty similar margin to Trump managed uh, over Biden. And I think this map, maybe we should have always seen this coming, that if Biden were not able to perform much better in Republican-leaning states than Hillary Clinton managed, which in a lot of these reach states he didn't, the Senate seats were never really on the table. Well, I think that's the biggest explanation because you, I think why in the past is that we often use money as the indicator momentum, isn't it? Like which can't, which... <laughs> that certainly was not true this time. No, it's certainly not. Because right now I'm just thinking about all the people who decided to send money to Amy McGrath and Jamie Harrison and even to Sarah Gideon to, to a lesser extent, but who now find themselves, their candidates losing by well over double digits. I mean, Amy McGrath, I just, here's an interesting statistic, raised $88 million and yet has still lost by 20 points. Now, I can't think of a poorer return to investment than that. And I suppose from a Republican's point of view, it must be quite nice having Mitch McConnell as a, as a, as, as in, in Kentucky, in the sense that Kentucky would probably never vote Democrat unless it's at a governor level. And he has voted Democrat at a governor level with current governor Andy Bashir. But it then can attract so much money, which could have probably spent, you know, getting Sarah Kivinian closer, Carl Cunningham overcoming his problems that he had in his personal life. So that's obviously quite glad then, isn't it, from a Republican point of view? Yeah, I think this is a conversation we'll probably have ad infinitum for many electoral cycles to come, which is just that fundraising tends to be 
quite skewed. I mean, it probably would have been worth in 2018 spending some of the money that was spent on Beto O'Rourke's seat in trying to defend Claire McCaskill's seat, for example, and it wasn't. And then you ended up not gaining two seats rather than gaining one and one being at a distance. But I think this is just a perpetual problem for candidates of all political parties, but especially the Democrats who so desperately want to want to take the scalps of very specific senators who just happen to be in strongly Republican areas, like Lindsey Graham, like Mitch McConnell. Yes, and I'm sure Lindsey Graham now, all those public mocking of us going on Fox News pleading for money, I'm not sure whether he would have... I think, I, think I think what has happened in South Carolina is generally his national profile he gained as chair of the Judiciary Committee during this cycle really helped him. There's rumours, though, that given that um, there's going to be a committee shake-up, that he is not go- he's going to move on from the um, Judiciary Committee. So Interesting. Time would tell. I think, I think his performance on the Judiciary Committee, I don't think ma- would have made a difference overall in terms of him keeping or losing his seat, but I think it definitely managed to energise his Republican base in South Carolina and probably is what made him win by double digits rather than single digits in the end. Certainly. And I think one of the features is overall, I think the Republicans were a lot stronger down ballot than we expected. I think you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, Doug sure. Jones losing by 20. Now, I thought you and I both accepted he was toast, but to lose by 20, I thought that was surprising. And I would say watch this space on when Biden announces his cabinet next week, I think, with Doug Jones. Because I think that could be a role for him in the Biden administration. But the other Senate seat that the Repo- that the Repo- Democrats picked, there were two Senate seats the Democrats picked that I also thought in quite a similar area of the country as last week, was both in Colorado and in Arizona, mm-hmm. where John Hinkalupa, the former governor, had won the Colorado seat. I think both parties accepted that Democrats are going to win that. Because I did read that the Republicans had basically given up on Colorado in the same way that they gave up on saving Mark Kirk's Illinois seat in 2016. But even in Arizona, I have to be honest, Mark Kelly has won it by about two and a bit points, not quite three points. That was a lot less than I thought, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and again, I I sound like I'm just repeating myself a lot, but what seemed to happen in Arizona versus expectation was it was always expected that Mark Kelly was going to outperform Joe Biden, but it was expected that Mark Kelly was going to outperform Joe Biden substantially Mm. and that did not happen i mean a lot of polls projected mark kelly to be winning that seat by almost double digits and he won it by two percent so i think it's just another example of people being unwilling to vote for donald trump at the top of the ticket and a democratic candidate down the ticket and that just didn't happen and this don't only apply to the senate as well it apply in the house side as well now, again, this is not going to be an episode that's going to be fun for both of us because you got it completely wrong in terms of predictions. We both predicted that we both thought the Democrats would gain five net seats in the Senate and the, in the House. But it's ending up at this stage, Democrats having 222 seats and the Republicans have 207. It's currently a net loss of eight, but it probably will be a lot. It might be even bigger than that. Now, 222 does mean the Democrats will retain control because you only need 218 Just. seats out of 435. The Democrats have gained three seats so far. Um, the Georgia 7th District, which is centered around Atlanta suburbs, North Carolina 2nd, and North Carolina 6th. 
Now, the key thing I would like to point out about all three seats that they gained is that they were all without incumbent Republicans. In the Georgia 7th, Rob Woodall, who was the previous congressman, decided to retire in this election. And North Carolina 2nd and North Carolina 6th were basically new seats that were redrawn um, after Supreme Court order last year. And they were redrawn in a way that it was always new that the Democrats were going to pick those up. So they, they were highly expected. Um, so therefore, those were kind of... So really, the only net gain, really, I would argue, is the Georgia 7th. And contrast against that is that they lost 11 seats from all over the country, notably in California, where they gained seven seats in 2018. Four of them have returned, looked like at this stage, to have returned to the Republicans. I should say at this stage that there are four seats undecided. One seat in Iowa, the Iowa second, where it's literally a cigarette paper difference between yeah, them. Yeah, it's about 50 votes, isn't 50 it? 50 votes, and it's gone to an automatic recount, unsurprisingly. And that, unlike the Georgia recount, has the potential to possibly change. Um, the so New York 22nd is also in extremely close territory. New York is... New York 22nd, well, election night, Claudia Temby had a 20,000 vote lead, and it's been cut, 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 cut ever since. Um, I heard from somewhere that both parties think it'd be under 500 votes. So... We really had to see Maryland. And I had to say, New York, count faster, for God's sake. God, Georgia has completed a recount already, and you still haven't and you still haven't counted all your ballots from the first time round. Jesus. It's crazy, really. It is crazy. And the other two that are undecided are both California seats. California 21st, which I think just TJ Cox is a very bad candidate. This is a seat that Biden has won handsomely, and Hillary Clinton won by 20 points in 2016 but it's currently struggling right now. And the other is the California 25th district where Christy Smith is also narrowly behind. So it could look like it, if it all goes wrong for the Democrats, they could only end up with a four-seat majority. So therefore, my first question to you, Sam, is is Nancy Pelosi like to be re-elected as Speaker? Yes, but I think it will very much be on the condition that she seems to have indicated very strongly herself this week, which is that this will be her last term as Speaker. But people I like, think that condition will be sent mandatory for her to retain this role. But people like Elisa Slotkin has already said they're going to vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. She has so little buffer this time. She does. She does. Um, but I think the thing that benefits her a lot is that there is no obvious successor presenting themselves forward. And, and in the history of politics, that is always even in the most precarious positions, Theresa May can tell you this, um, <laughs> you survive if there is no obvious replacement. And I think Nancy Pelosi will manage to do that. And the Nancy one... Pelosi, don't forget, has been engaging very strongly with the Biden team already. It's very much being presented as Pelosi and Schumer working with Biden and Harris. And I think it would take quite something to dislodge that. The one thing I did notice, though, is that when she campaign for um to become speaker again in 2018 she promised not only her she would be term limited but the term limits are both the majority leader which is Stanley hoyer of maryland and or jim Clyburn of south carolina will also be term limited now that she can term limit herself but can she term limit people like stanley what about stanley hoyer and jim Clyburn? will we 2022 see a clean a generational change in the Democrat leadership, given that both Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn are both the age of 70? 
I think we probably will, but I don't necessarily think by design of Nancy Pelosi, but I think we will end up seeing that just naturally because, because of age reasons. I mean, although saying that Joe Biden is about to become the 46th president at the tender age of 78 years old, and still he is going to be the youngest of the three legislative leaders because Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are both older than him. But, but yeah, potentially. That's amazing. I didn't realize that, that he's going to be the youngest as well. I mean, he's the spring you, chicken. He's, he's definitely the spring chicken. Um, I think there's one other thing you want to talk about is now analyzing why the, Demo- why the Republicans overperformed relative to the Democrats. Now, there are so many, many reasons I see him floating over. But one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that let's just wind back to the midterms um, where we talk about the, mid- the Midwest and we talked about this idea of this suburban revolt against Donald Trump. Now, 2018 saw the same similar revolt in the suburbs, and they voted for a lot of House Democrats. The most obvious, some of them include Joe Cunningham, who has lost in South Carolina, um, Kendra Horn in Oklahoma's 5th District, Max Rose in uh, Representative Island in New York. But this time around, they both lost their seats in, with the same boundaries as well. Now, the, my first question to you, Sam, is that the difference between 2018 and 2020 is that Donald Trump is on the ballot this time around rather than two years ago. So do you think his presence on the ballot meant that Republicans in the suburbs this time around could sort of take their frustrations out at Donald Trump by not voting for him at the top of the ticket and therefore feel more safe voting for or more happy voting for a Republicans down ballot than they would have had in 2018? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think there's maybe two things at play here. One of which is that turnout in presidential elections tend to tend to be much higher. And we know from our last few weeks of discussions that the GOP get out the vote operation on election day in particular was very strong. So I think the Republicans managed to squeeze out their voters a lot more than it was expected. And I think the other thing that happened was that in a similar way to what I was suggesting maybe happened in the suburban areas of North Carolina, was that these disenfranchised Republicans, although they were not necessarily willing to vote for Trump at the top of the ticket and wanted to express their frustration at Trump, still felt like they would rather have the security of a Republican congressman or congresswoman representing them to control a Biden administration because one of the big risks that I think Republicans thought with the Biden administration is if he has a trifecta, he will be able to implement a lot of left-leaning policies that we as Republicans didn't really want to vote for, even though we dislike Trump. I I want to pick you up on this idea of security because it's very interesting. I think as well, don't you think that that, and I know you might disagree with me in this, but I also wonder how much the Democrat messages of particularly espoused by some of the more liberal congressmen and congresswomen, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, with slogans such as defund the police and Medicare for all, as heightening the sense of Republicans' feelings of wanting to have security of a Republican congressman or senator in these cases, because they could see what an alternative left-leaning platform looked like. And frankly, there's something that they couldn't swallow Yeah, I think there maybe is some oxygen in that. But at the same time, I would counter that by suggesting that 
I don't think it was necessarily as prevalent as people like us who follow politics a lot thinks about it. Because certainly the top of the ticket, which is by far the most publicised part of the ticket nationally in the US, was trying to actively distance themselves from those kind of claims. Repeatedly, when questioned about it, they would skirt around it, much to the frustration of the left-leaning side of the Democratic Party, but they did actively try to disengage with it. But saying that, I do think there's oxygen in suggesting that Republicans who may have been tempted to both not vote for Trump and not vote for a Republican member of Congress change their mind based on that concern that a trifecta of Democrats would be much more left-leaning than a Biden presidency checked by one or two chambers of a Republican Congress would be. And that's very interesting because that, I think it's a fact that it hadn't been considered before, Frank, until the results came out because it was very much driven by um, local issues that a lot of the congressmen were fighting out, not how people's expectations of what the top ticket might look like mm. and therefore working out for your best interest. So I suppose my next question is this, is that it's fine to talk post-game analysis, but did the polls miss something in a sense that should we in the future include what people might expect in the top of the ticket and then adjust its behavior accordingly down ballot? Or was there potentially some other factors in the last week besides a good get-out-the-vote campaign for the Republicans? Because, frankly, if you ask me before the election, if I would say that the Democrats would lose seats in California and gain nothing in Texas in the House, I would have been very surprised, really, or called you out of your mind if such a scenario would happen. But that is exactly what has happened, because even in um, the Democrats' best chances in the Texas 23rd district, they still re-elected re a Republican congressman. Yeah, I, I think that's a very difficult thing to measure because without measuring people's opinions on a daily basis in the run-up to an election, it's very difficult to recognise where those shifts occurred. Um, but I think, again, what happened in the House, particularly in areas like Kendra Horn Sea or in the Texan areas, we saw the impact of these congressional elections taking place on the same day as a presidential election in a hyper-partisan environment, where we were completely overestimating the number of people who were willing to put a cross in Donald Trump's box on the ballot paper and then move down the ballot and put a cross in the box of a Democratic candidate. And I think we saw that repeatedly. Now, that doesn't apply universally because in areas like California and New York in the areas where Democrats lost seats it would be the Biden campaign were winning those areas but I think it certainly applies to the sort of seats which the Democrats picked up in the 2018 blue wave in the more uh, rural areas or in red states where in a presidential election combating that partisanship is just a step too far and is a restraint that didn't exist two years ago. I think it's very interesting as well because I think one of the things you have to acknowledge as well is that in both the Pennsylvania legislature and the Texas legislature, they actually changed the rules to basically ban straight ticket voting. And I wonder whether that change actually benefited Republicans as well. Because in the past, I think hatred towards Donald Trump and the nationalization of politics meant that it would, you would just vote against Donald Trump, therefore you had to vote Democrat, and that will impact all the Republicans down the ticket. 
but by making you decide on individual races, as in banning this idea of straight ticket voting, it therefore meant that you had to consider different factors, like do I want to check on the Biden administration? What the left-leaning Congress would look like? Mm-hmm. How did this this state representative do in terms of delivering services? And that could have saved a lot of Republicans as well. I don't. I think, and given that Texas in 2018 we saw not only the impact of a closed Senate race, but that also flowed down to the House in a sense that a lot of Democrats came very close to unseating Republican congressmen. And two of them actually did, Lizzie Fletcher and Colin Aldred, did successfully unseat them. And we saw the impacts of incumbency. Colin Aldred skated to re-election by six points in this cycle. And Lily, Lizzie Fletcher also won re-election by four points as well. So I wonder as well, that they also, this idea which they banned straight ticket voting meant that it actually helped them down ballot and also potentially helped them in future contests as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. I think as well, one of the things we have, we want to, I want to talk about um, remaining is the fact that we, we talk about the fact that Democrats now only have a four-seat majority. Now, we're going to be talking about the cabinet next week, but do you think this has potentially any impact the fact that we have a Democrat, very slim Democrat majority in the House, and at this stage, a Republican control of the Senate. Do you think that could impact Biden's cabinet formation? I think it has an enormous impact on Biden's cabinet formation in so many ways. Chiefly, you will be very restricted in this partisan environment with who you can get confirmed in a Republican-controlled Senate. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that next week when we talk about the cabinet. But I think it also restricts his selection pool from the congressional chambers because if you are worried at all that that seat could flip if you remove the incumbent from it, you're just not going to do it in an environment where the margins are so thin. And especially in the House side where the, it's looking like the Democrats are probably going to lose double digits seats. And some of but those they have lost, lost 11 already. Yeah, yeah. And these are seats that they didn't necessarily expect to be losing because a lot of Democrats thought they were going to be gaining seats in the House. I don't think you're going to be willing to take any risks with regards to appointing members from the House to the Cabinet, because I think you're then risking an already slim majority becoming even slimmer. Mm. I, I, think that, I think that's true. And do you think, and don't forget though, and this is why this podcast can continue in such a long period of time, don't forget, we're going to have to be sitting here doing this all again in two years' time, because Biden will be facing his first midterms. Now, traditionally, the president's party does not do well in midterm elections. No, and I have some excellent statistics on that, which I think should just send shivers down the Democratic Party's spine, um, unless they can manage to subvert expectations. But So since the Second World War, the average loss of the president's party in the chambers of Congress was they lost on average 26 House seats and four Senate seats in their midterm when they were the incumbent president. And even more wild, since 1900, on eight occasions, only eight occasions, has the president's party gained seats in either chamber. And only twice since 1900 has the president's party gained in both of those. Wow. And wow, one of them indeed. was George Bush in the aftermath of 
Yeah, and 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 as we said numerous times, I think that was there's a lot potential. of different. Yeah, very special, special, special case. I would like to point out as well that the last time the Democrat president faced his first midterm, Barack Obama, he lost sixty three seats in the House. Losing sixty three seats in the House that is, is phenomenal. It is yeah. phenomenal. Now, I would say though that I doubt the Democrats will lose sixty three seats all to their order because. The makeup of how the Democrats won the chamber in 2006 relied a lot, a lot of rural conservative districts in places like Oklahoma, in places like Tennessee, yeah, which, which are they just not don't hold now. Which they don't yeah. hold now. So they, although we think that they might potentially lose seats, though, that it would not be to the same extent. And so, therefore, do you think Nancy Pelosi is quite clever, though, in a sense that if she termed, given that the fact that she termed him to herself? she could finish a tenure as speaker, not as a speaker who lost the house for the second time, which is a lot better in history, doesn't it? That sounds. Yeah, and I think that's very likely to happen. I cannot see a universe in which Nancy Pelosi leads the Democrats into the 2022 midterms as the speaker, as the presumptive speaker candidate of the Democrats. I cannot see a situation in which that occurs, both on age and on the Democrat Party's tolerance of that as an idea. I wonder whether we look back at Nancy Pelosi's very long career, is that I think we can both say that she's an extremely good legislator and she can count votes like no one can in the sense that corral them together and get a coalition through the Senate, uh, through the House. Discipline is going to be extremely important in this. Oh, oh, certainly. I mean, we already have rumours that the Democrats are having a civil war amongst themselves in the House, with ALC pushing for progressive legislation, and Abigail Spanberger determined that the Democrats should remain a centrist party. So the Democrats are unlikely to be a very happy family over the next two years, aren't they? Speaking of happy families, I saw this week that when Biden said that he was nearing his selection of his Treasury Secretary, the quote he used was, I picked somebody who will please all wings of the Democratic Party. Now, I challenge you to name someone (laughs) who can do that, because I cannot see any person on this earth who will do that. Well, he has promised to announce it around Thanksgiving, which is next week. So we will see and whether we can make a prediction who will be Treasury Secretary it will be very interesting. But I think it's very interesting. Let's bring in President Biden, elect Biden for a minute. I think the way to describe him is that most presidents have coattails. In other words, the strength of the president's performance usually lifts... A, is a, is a, is a, the strength of a president's performance, particularly if he performs very well, is a tie that lifts all boats. But, and so therefore, it brings on coattails. In other words, legislators last year only come in because he was elected in the first place. The strength of that party's vote was so strong mm-hmm. that they brought them in as well. It's largely why I suspect the Democrats did very well at the Senate in 2008 when he placed like Alaska. Yeah. You know, ordinary that would never have voted Democrat only because Barack Obama did so well. I would then argue though, is this case a war of coattails? What coattails? Because Biden wore the presidency quite handsomely, but that failed to translate in both the House and Senate. Yeah, so my challenge to this would be that Biden did have coattails and that without Biden at the top of the ticket, this situation could have been much worse. Um, Because let's look at states like Michigan, where Gary Peters held on to that seat so marginally that he tracked Biden's performance there. And had Biden not been at the top of the ticket, you may have seen problems in that department as well. And I just wonder if 
this the situation in Congress, although it seems like an underperformance on the Democratic side, might have a lot to thank Joe Biden for, because this could have been worse, I think. Fair enough. I, I accept that. I, I think so too. But I think it also speaks to his unique political appeal, is that someone, he has built his entire political career as someone who has re- reached across the aisle and who has mm-hmm. made deals and stuff like that. And I think to a lot of suburbs, it is nostalgic era of what politics used to be like. I think that's I wonder, very attractive. I, I wonder if President-elect Biden will prove to be precisely the right person for this kind of political environment because he sold himself as somebody who can reach across the aisle, as somebody who knows the Senate like the back of his hand, and he's going to need it. And he's going to need to demonstrate that he's capable of doing that because his administration is going to start from a position, which is unusual in American history, to start your administration without a, a good amount of secure control, at least in one chamber, with a narrow House majority and probably a non-existent Senate majority. So he's going to have to prove that he's capable of doing that. And I wonder if he will prove to be exactly the right person for this moment. Well, the last president that was that entered a situation like that was George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while since a president entered with divided government. Yeah. And so, like, like you said, it, w- it will be very interesting to watch. But this is Biden's whole political persona is given. Washington, though, has changed, though, let's be frank, since, yeah. the, time of, since the time of, not even, you don't have to look even so far to George H.W. Bush, even when he was vice president. It's just changed so much. So I do wonder, and given the fact it could get worse two years' time when the Democrats lose, the, if the Democrats lose the House, you know, I just wonder in terms of legislative gridlock, in terms of getting changes through, the fact that we haven't had a COVID relief bill and unlikely to have one as well. You know, how in terms of America needing reforms, what comes next? I, in terms of people getting even more frustrated, you know, what comes next? I'm genuinely scared, frankly. Yeah, it's certainly going to be fascinating and interesting thing to watch because... Uh, the buzzword for this podcast quite obviously has been partisanship and right now we're experiencing that on steroids and I think this election was the latest indication of just how severe that partisanship has become. Apart from your Susan Collins of course. Apart from your Susan Collins. She is indestructible. And and I think one more thing I would like to point out is that I'd like to take a look at Arizona because if you go back to 2016, you know, it had two Republican senators and it also voted for, um, it voted for Donald Trump by three points. Mm-hmm. In the four years since, it has lost both Senate seats. The first clue was in 2018 when Kristen Sinema won the seat and then Martha McSally two years later. So therefore, is indicators of electoral threat, sorry, no, Martha McSally, Martha McSally lost to Mark Kelly. Therefore, is it an indication of how you turn seats from red to blue or if indication of longer-term trends, if, if the Senate starts changing um, from one party to the other and that both Senate seats changing towards one direction? I think in this era, for sure. And But while we're speaking about Arizona, I think we should take a moment to talk about Martha McSally, who I think I'm right in saying, Chern, is the first person ever to lose both Senate seats in one state as the incumbent. 
Yes, she is. She's the first senator to lose both sen- Senate seats as incumbents. Now, I should say there are a couple of senators who have contested both Senate seats um, in both cycles, but um, they've won at least one of them. That's the first thing Martha McSally failed to do. But there are several challenges or so that, look, that challenge both Senate seats. Um, and challenges, of course, could be very different because you could have the same person running in you know, California and we both know what the outcome is going to be. So yeah. um, she's definitely created history in this way. And um, she has just, because it's a special election, Mark Kelly will be in a ballot in two years' time, first of all. But she's also left Congress as well. She's given her valedictory as well. So the Democrats now will have 48 seats as well. Um, and so I do know that Republicans win both. We're at 52-48, which is a, a number in which having both been living in the UK... You know, we've lived we're all too, too many, familiar with that. We're all too familiar with fifty-two forty-eight. Time is running out um, on what is an interesting discussion, and sadly, we must cut short it. But I cannot resist asking you a prediction of what will happen in the Georgia runoff seats. What do you think is going to happen? Will Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff win their seats, or will David Perdue and Kelly Loffier return? Because I certainly think they are paired, don't you think, at the very least? So I disagree with the pair theory, and I'm going oh. to make a wild prediction that I think Raphael Warnock will win the special election, and David Perdue will win the runoff for the main Georgia seat. Why do you think that difference? Because I think, well, firstly, I think Kelly Loeffler is less popular than David Perdue, and one of the big indications of that was that she had to contest quite a hard fought even though it was a jungle primary it was basically a republican primary on the ballot in the end against um doug collins and she only just scraped through that and i think raphael warnock is a really fascinating candidate who energizes a lot of voters um particularly african-american voters who will be vital to what actually occurs in Georgia. And maybe you'll be correct that if he manages to energise those voters he needs to win, that that will also help John Ossoff over the line. But I think David Perdue's base is stronger than Kelly Loeffler's would be, is my What is interesting about that prediction is that if you think back to the start of the year, we both thought that that Senate, that was a missed opportunity. If you go back to our very first podcast on the Senate, we both said that, that Georgia's Senate seat is a missed opportunity. But what you're saying, that candidate is actually better than in the main seat, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think John Ossoff's a very effective candidate, but I think Raphael Warnock has turned out to be a bit of a revelation, really. I would like to point out as well that Raphael Warnock is also the pastor at Martin Luther King's former church. So I think there is a very special connection there, and it would be very interesting. But the key there, I think, in both Senate seats is that the Democrats have to do better amongst rural whites. If there is a drop-off in the amount of vote percentage they get, it is virtually game over in Georgia, yeah, particularly and right they now. Cannot, and they cannot afford for the turnout, particularly amongst the African-American community, to drop from it. Exactly. I, would, I, would, I, I do think, though, that this runoff election will set all kinds of records in terms of turnout for a runoff election. Um, as indicated anyway anyway I've asked you that question I'll give my own prediction now I, unfortunately I do think that I, both David Perdue and Kelly Loffier will win well you know 
luckily for us is that we don't have long to wait. It seems like always there's an election coming around. But I'm afraid that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to talk about. Join us again next week as where we, as promised, we'll be discussing the formation of, Biden, of the Biden cabinet and as always bringing you up to date of the world of politics and election around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter at, at ballot underscore talk and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. And until then, see you soon. I'll talk to you next week, Sam. Talk to you next week.